you all here today and uh, to get to be with you. It is a privilege and the uh, coronavirus and all that's going on with that in China reminds us once again of the blessing that we have of being able to be together in this kind of context without fear, without uh, danger, and uh, God has blessed us. And today we are going to be reading from Romans chapter 6. So if you would take your Bible out and turn there, and then you have your bulletin with the uh, notes. I gave you blanks once again. Um, by the way, if you, if you want to ignore those blanks, go for it. Feel free. You can ignore them. You can take notes on something else entirely. I, I, don't, I don't know. But uh, they're there if you uh, want to use them. But we are in Romans chapter 6 and working our way through the book of Romans, which we started about a year ago now. And uh, we're all the way into the sixth chapter. The uh, argument has been extensive to this point. And Paul has made no bones about the guilt of mankind and, uh, and, and the consequence that we deserve because of our guilt, because of our sin, sin that we have committed ourselves, sin that we have inherited from our, our father Adam, and uh, the consequences that come with that as well. And then in light of that, and in that context, he's developed this doctrine of justification by faith, how the righteousness of God is revealed in Christ and it is ours by faith in Christ. And having done that, having argued extensively for both of those things, now he begins to turn in, in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, he begins to turn to what this means practically for us, which I know is the question on everyone's mind. As we spent so much time talking theology, we spent so much time talking about ultimate realities and, and things maybe we don't think of every day and and uh, maybe in, uh, in some of that discussion, you wondered, well, how does this help me live tomorrow uh, or Wednesday? What, what, uh, what help do I get practically in my life from thinking about these theological topics? And uh, that's exactly where Paul takes us. And we're going to get there in a big way today. And so join me, if you would, Romans chapter 6. We're going to cover, Lord willing, verses 5 through 11 today. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning and we declare and remind ourselves of who you are. You're eternal, never had a beginning, will have no ending. You're unchanging unfazed by events or any other being. You're self-determined. 
You decide, based upon your wisdom, what you will do. And you are all wise. And we worship you and give you honor and bow down to you. And we praise you for what you've done for us in Christ that we will discuss today that that he came as the second, the last Adam who obeyed you, who resisted temptation, who was righteous in his life, and who died in our place. So we praise you for Jesus, the last Adam. And we pray that even this morning as we open your word and as we talk about Romans chapter 6 and what some of the implications are for our lives, we pray that you would help us to see and to think and to understand what this means for us, that we are in Christ. And Father, we look forward to celebrating the Lord's Supper together, communing with one another and communing with you in it, reminding ourselves, celebrating again Jesus' death on that cross for us. So we ask that you would bless our time this morning. We ask that you would be lifted up, that you would help us to understand what is the significance, what is some of the significance of these great truths even for our lives, practically today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Events of the past affect how we live in the present. For example, if you came before the appropriate authorities with your fiancé, And you made certain covenant commitments, promised certain things, took certain vows. That is something that happened in the past. And it has consequences for your life going forward. Events of the past affect the way we live in the present. And one of the problems in our culture that we see today is, of course, that people uh, often want to forget those past events, like a marriage ceremony. They want to forget that, and they want to live in the present as if those past events did not happen. But, of course, we know they did, and we know there are consequences. The events of the past affect how we live in the present. Today, we're going to look biblically at some of the most significant events in the past that have had some of the most profound effects on how we are going to live in the present. We've been talking theology a lot. We've been talking of these great and deep and hard truths about humanity, about who we are, about our lostness and the consequences of that. We've been talking about justification and how it is that the righteousness of God, righteousness that meets God's standard, can can be found in us or can be applied to us or how that term can be applied to us who are not righteous. Of course, that's where Jesus comes into the picture. And those are events. These are events of the past. These are great truths. So what effect do they have in our lives today? Well, that's our task 
this morning is to begin to dig out some of the effects of this. And we see, first of all, in verse 5, that we are united with Christ in resurrection, which is going to be a theme for our whole paragraph. You see verse 5 there, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. See, the events of the past that we're talking about are events in the life of Jesus. Not so much events in your own life. And not even so much events in history in general, but about what Jesus did, what was accomplished by Jesus and what He did. And we see, first of all, that we are affected by His death. And so Paul can say, we have died with Christ. We have died with Him. We have been united with Him in a death like His. This is an event that took place in the past. This is something that's been accomplished by Jesus, and it has impact for our lives. And something I want to notice at this point is that he talks about being united with Him in a death like His. Well, His death was somewhat of a process. It took some hours to be accomplished. But it was some hours in one day. And then it was finalized. He died. It was completed. It was done. It happened in a moment. It was finished in a moment. And he says, we also have been united with him in a death like his. And the reason I bring that up here is because we often think of dying to ourselves, and that's a biblical concept. We often think of uh, what goes on that we have to die to our own desires in ongoing ways. And that's a biblical concept that Paul talks about elsewhere. But here he's talking not about those sort of internal struggles against temptation and sin that are ongoing where we have to die again and again and again. That's not what he's talking about here. Here he's talking about the death of Christ that was accomplished. It was finished. It happened. It was done. And we have been united with him in that death, a death like his. So that there's an accomplishment. There's something being done. He's not talking here about the ongoing struggle. He will get to that later on in 6 and in chapter 7. He will get to that ongoing struggle, chapter 8. But right here he's saying the death of Christ has consequences for you because we have died with him. We have been united with him in a death a death like His. So it's an accomplished fact. We died. So we've died with Christ. And secondly, we will certainly live with Him. He says, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We will certainly live with Him. Just as certain as His death was, so certain is your life in Him. Just as certain as the first was accomplished, the second is accomplished for those who are in Christ having resurrection. Well, of course, when we think about resurrection in the New Testament, we tend to think about resurrection at the end of time or at the end when Jesus returns, when all, we'll all be raised, uh, the living and the dead, uh, the, w w uh, the, uh, the righteous and the unrighteous, everyone will be raised to eternal life, the resurrection that happens at the end. And of course, that will happen, but that's not what he's discussing here. He's 
talking about a resurrection that's not in the future, but for the Christian, it's a resurrection that's in the past. It's a resurrection that affects us in the here and now, which, of course, raises the question, how? In what way? How is the resurrection ours right now? Just how does our death and resurrection with Christ affect us in the here and now? Well, that's the question I want you to have on your mind as we go through the rest of our passage, because that's the question that Paul raises and he's going to answer in our passage today. And so we see, first of all, that we are now beyond the reign of death. Excuse me. We are now beyond the reign of sin. Look at verses six and seven. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So we are now beyond the reign of sin. This is the first of the consequences for us of this resurrection. This is the first aspect of what it means for us. He says our old self was crucified. Our old self was crucified. The old man is a better translation. Our old man was crucified. In what sense? Or who is our old man? Who is our old self? Well, without going into too much detail, the old self is who we were in Adam. If you remember what we talked about in chapter 5, verses 12 and through the end of that chapter... There was this great picture given, this great comparison and contrast given between the first Adam and the last Adam, who is Christ. And the first Adam, of course, he's the father of all humanity and all humans come from him. And he sinned and he inherited death and judgment and condemnation. And so the argument of Romans chapter 5 is that everyone who is born in Adam inherits that same thing. So that's everyone. But of course, that's contrasted with Christ, who is the last Adam. He's a, a, another representative, not a representative of all of humanity as Adam was, but a representative of all those who were in him. And he obeys the Father. And he inherits eternal life and righteousness instead of judgment and condemnation. And so you have a contrast between these two men, the old man, Adam, and the new man who is Christ, or the first Adam and the last Adam who is Christ. And so I think it's best if we translate that as the old man. And by the way, that's literally what it is. I think that's what Paul had in mind. He was trying to draw our attention back to Romans chapter 5, so that we would think about the old man, the one man, Adam, and the one man, the new man, Jesus. The one man, Adam, who brought sin and death into the world. That one man's trespass brought death for the many, and judgment came along with it. And through that one man, death reigned, and all men were condemned because all were made sinners. That's the one man, Adam, in whom we were all born. That's the old man. And so Paul's point when he says our old man, our old self was crucified, he's talking about who we were when we were in Adam. 
that man that we used to be, that woman that we used to be, who we were when we were in Adam. And he makes a very bold statement when he says, our old self was crucified. That old man, Brennan in Adam, was crucified with Christ. And when we were crucified with Christ, our body of sin was brought to nothing. Did you see that phrase in there? Our old self was crucified, verse 6, with Him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What's the body of sin? I think the body of sin refers to our body as it was used sinfully in Adam. I think it was our sinful interaction with the world when we were in Adam. I think it's the part of us in in Adam that was controlled by sin. Our body of sin. And so our body, the flesh of it, of course, is not the source of the problem. There are beliefs that, that say that material things are bad and spiritual things are good. That's not what we're talking about. This material body that we have can be used for evil. And in Adam, it was. And so it was a body of sin. It was used to sinning. It was used for sin. It was governed by sin. It was enslaved to sin. But now in Christ, that body of sin has been brought to nothing. It's been done away. So I'm now useful to God. I'm now useful to righteousness. I'm now a slave to righteousness. And so he says, our old self was crucified, and that was so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Our old man in Adam was put to death, was crucified with Christ, and our old slave master, uh, slave master relationship to sin was done away with. Our old self, our old man was crucified. And thus, we are set free from sin. Again, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The result, the consequence of this exchange, the consequence of us having been crucified, our old man having been put to death, and thus the body of sin done away with, is that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer slaves. We are set free from sin. We don't have that same obligation to sin that we used to have. We're not bound to obey sin like the unbeliever is bound to obey sin. We have been set free because we were crucified with Christ. And I've used this illustration before, but it it strikes me every time. You who were in the military or are in the military know what Uh, One of the things they're trying to accomplish in boot camp is to train instant and unquestioning obedience into you. And so you'll be told to do all kinds of things by by your drill instructor. And you may not like them, and you may argue a few times, but you'll learn not to argue. I've never been in the military. I don't know. I'm just going from what I've read or heard or imagined. (laughs) But you're taught to do what you're told and to do it now or else. Well... That's, the, that's part of the purpose of boot camp. Well, now maybe you're out of the military. Or it may be that now you outrank your drill instructor. I don't know. And so if you ran into them on the street or at Walmart or at church, 
and they were to bark orders to you, do you have to hop down and do what they say to do? No, you don't. Because you are no longer under their authority. You no longer have to be obedient. You're no longer enslaved to do what they say to do. Now, part of the sin struggle, by the way, is that we find ourselves in push-up position right away when they say, drop and give me 20. Even though we have, he, he has no authority, we have no obligation to do what he says. When sin says jump, we still find ourselves about to jump because we're so used to it. It's such a habit. And in some ways, it's even the way we like to live. But he says here that we have been set free because we've been crucified with Christ. Because of his death, we are set free from the bondage of sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And so the first present effect for us of our death and resurrection with Christ is that we are now beyond the reign of sin. Its reign over us and over our body has been broken. So that's the first real consequence of justification for today. That has impact for today. That's the first one. And the second one, we are beyond the reign of death. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ was raised from the dead forever. He was raised from the dead forever. Death was, wasn't final for Christ. He was raised from the dead. And right now we're studying in our Gospel of John Sunday School class. We're going through and talking about the, the disciples and the things that they're about to face when the crucifixion happens, when Jesus is arrested and he's tried and all that stuff goes on and the fear that they face and how they end up scattering and, and all of this. It's a terrible, terrible thing. They, they have such great fear. They, uh, they, they run away as a result because they are confused and afraid because it seems like death is the end. Because death is always the end, isn't it? But death is not the end. Jesus was raised from the dead forever. Not like Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead to die again. And that was a massive miracle that Jesus performed when he raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Jesus knew he was dead, and he stayed away for an extra couple of days to make sure he was all the way dead. He had been dead. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days already, and Jesus raised him. What a miracle. What a miracle he performed to show that he is the resurrection and the life, to, to bring back Lazarus from the dead. But Lazarus died again. And when we were in Cyprus in 2007... 2008, we visited Lazarus's tomb. There he is in the ground under an Orthodox church in Cyprus because he died again. But Jesus, when he was raised, was raised never to die again. He's raised from the dead forever. He had not just thrown off temporarily the shackles of death. He had not just undone for the time being what death can accomplish he showed utter and complete and final and definite victory over death so that he's never to die again. So he himself was raised forever. He defeated 
death, he will never die again. And secondly, we also are beyond death's reign. Catch the logic of verse 8 here. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Because we are in him, we died the same kind of death that he died. And just as assuredly, we will also live with him. We died with him. That is a sure and certain fact. And just like he was raised from the dead, never to die again, we will be raised likewise. Of course, our bodies still die. We know that Christians die just like everybody else at just the same rate as everybody else dies, a one-to-one correspondence. So we know that our bodies die. That's not the question. The question is the finality of death. You see, the Christian has life after death. In Christ, we have life even when we die. Death is not the final victor. Death is not ultimate. Death is not victorious over us. We have life even when our earthly bodies die. We will continue to live on in His presence forever. But today we are asking the question, how does our death and resurrection with Christ affect us in the here and now? So how does this affect us here and now? That's comforting when we think about the future. That's comforting when we think about our own death at some point in the future or perhaps when we think about the death of a loved one. Maybe it's imminent or maybe it's in the past. That's encouraging and that resurrection thought is true. That resurrection will indeed happen. But what he's talking about today has ramifications. It means something for our life now, Christians. So what is that? Well, sin reigned in death. We read in chapter 5, sin reigned in death. Sin exerted ultimate power, not just at the end of our life when we succumb to death, but at the moment, in every moment of our lives, we used to be spiritually dead. So sin reigned in death because sin exerted death, exercised death spiritually upon every unregenerate person. Every person who is outside of Christ was dead. Over here, remember, in Adam. And what had we inherited by being in Adam? Death was one of those things. Present death, even though we walk. Even though our body breathes, spiritually dead. That was our, our inheritance by virtue of being an Adam. And so sin reigned in death. And so over here in this realm where we used to live, we were dead. And we needed to be made alive. We needed to be restored to new life. Well, and of course, Jesus comes on the scene and, and He is victorious. He gives life and He gives life that's eternal, that's unending. In Him we have righteousness, we have eternal life, we have peace with God. And so the sin that used to reign by means of death in my body as an unbeliever, resulting in me serving death, resulting in me serving sin, resulting in me serving my master with my body, with my whole life, with my whole energy and my whole heart, that has all been changed. 
That has been put to death. That body has been put to death. That arrangement has been put to death. That old allegiance, that old mastery has been put to death. So that we who are in Christ, we, we have peace with God. We have a new master. We have a new Lord. We have a new reason we serve Him. We have a, a, a new way that we serve Him from actual life. And so the resurrection that we have is not just future, it's not just distant, but it's present now that we've been made alive to Christ. We've been made alive to God. And we serve Him as our master. That's the master slave relationship that we have now. So we are no longer bound by this reign of death. We're no longer bound by this reign of sin. We've been set free. And then finally, this has life-giving implications for us. Verses 10 and 11. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christ died to sin and lives to God. When Christ came to this earth, he had freely agreed to take on the obligation of dealing with sin for his people. He came to overcome sin in his own life, having faced temptation victoriously and fulfilling all righteousness in his obedience to the law, in his obedience to the Father. And more than that, he came not only to be righteous in his own life, but also to bear the penalty for sin. He came to die under the weight of God's wrath for the sins of his people. Jesus had taken an obligation. He had agreed to do this, that he was going to deal with sin. And so he had those things that he had to accomplish in dealing with sin for us. And once he had completed that mission, having died to sin, he now lives to God. You see, he completed that fulfillment. He, he, he fulfilled that obligation that he had to sin. The obligation to live righteously in contrast to our unrighteous lives. And to die innocent in the place of the guilty for us. So he himself, in his own body, in his own life, in his own death, burial, and resurrection, dealt with sin. And this is where, this is where the gospel is miraculous. Because the message is not for us to clean up our lives so that we can merit, so that we can be acceptable, become acceptable to God. So that finally he can smile at us because we're no longer so dirty. He has stated again and again and again, that is not even possible. The miracle and the joy of the gospel is that Jesus himself, the son of God, was born as one of us. And he obeyed. He was righteous before God. And being righteous where we are unrighteous, he also went as the innocent one to the cross in the place of the guilty one, me. So he was righteous where I have not been and he paid the penalty so I wouldn't have to. 
And if I will trust in Him, if I will turn away from trusting myself, from, from trusting anything I've accomplished or any other thing I might look after, if I will believe in Him and in Him alone, He will grant me that righteousness. He will apply that righteousness to my account and forgive me of my sin. So that rather than having to clean myself up to make God happy with me, by changing my life, by becoming obedient where I'm not obedient now, by, by believing uh, uh, certain, certain uh, doctrines or doing certain things in certain orders or whatever, rather than having to clean my own act up so that I can be acceptable to God, Paul has said that will never happen. Instead, Jesus himself is perfectly acceptable to the Father. And he offers that acceptance with the Father to all who will trust in him. And you can have peace with God. You can be made righteous in God's eyes by that means. And where sin used to reign in our bodies, sin no longer reigns. Because Jesus died to sin and lives to God. Having accomplished everything regarding sin, his life now is directed entirely Godward. He, he doesn't have to address sin anymore. He doesn't have to deal with that sin problem anymore. He has done so. And so now he lives Godward towards God. He lives to God. And in Christ, we also are dead to sin and alive to God. Sin is no longer our master. Sin no longer calls the shots. God calls the shots. He is our master. We are no longer over here in Adam. In Christ, we have a new master. In Christ, we have a new relationship with the Father. We're no longer at enmity with the Father because of, because of our inheritance in Adam. Instead, we have peace with God in Christ. So we, we have peace with Him. We have this new relationship. We have a new situation where we are alive to God. We can obey Him. We used to be dead. Sin reigned in death. And we served ourselves and we served our sin. And in Christ, we've been made alive. We are alive to Him. We can, we can choose to obey Him. We desire to, from the heart, we desire to obey Him. Because we've been made alive in Him and now we live to God. And sin's biggest weapon, sin's biggest threat, death, has been put behind us. We don't even have to fear earthly death. We will die physically. Chances are very, very good. We will die physically. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to be afraid of that. That's not the end. Death is no longer a tyrant. Death has been defeated. And we will live forever in Christ. So as a result, like Christ, we now live with only God in view before us. Death has no dominion. Sin has no dominion. We don't have to bow to sin's commands anymore. We don't have to cow to death's threats anymore. We can live free of their dominion. And so that's the message of these verses. But there's a point of application. There are three points of application, actually. Did you notice what he says there in verse 11? And this is the first real command in the book of Romans. By the way, we're already partway through chapter 6, and we've just come to our first real command. 
you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the first real command he gives us, what does he tell us to do? Consider ourselves. Think about it. Remember that. Remember that. I think an illustration here will help us understand what it means to consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I've said before, it's not as if we are pretending that it is so. It's not as though we're faking it until we make it. It's not, it's not that we're just acting like it's the case because it's a good idea and a strong mental strategy. It is the case. It is the reality, and we need to remember that reality. Just like a person who's been diagnosed with diabetes. Better remember that reality when they open the fridge. When they decide how they're going to eat, how they're going to exercise, or how they're going to live their life. They need to remember that reality. Does remembering that reality cause that reality to be so? No. They're just calling to mind what they need to keep in mind. Oh yes, I'm a diabetic. I can no longer eat like that. I need to do this. I need to change my lifestyle in this way. I need to remember what is true about me. And that's what Paul is saying here. After, after having said all these things about us being dead to sin in Christ and alive to God in Christ, he says in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves to be so. Call it to mind. Remind yourself of what is true. Remind yourself of what is true. We talked earlier about marriage. This is to remind us that it's true. The ring doesn't make it so. If the ring made it so, we'd we'd be in real trouble because I lost my original ring in the lake. So that would be big trouble. That doesn't make it so. It's a reminder. It's a reminder to you. It's a reminder to me. And so for us, the reminder is we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And thus, like the diabetic who needs to remember that he's diabetic, this helps us to live in light of these truths, to live in light of the benefits and the blessings that are ours in Christ. Remember what is true about you. Remind yourself what is true about you. It's helpful with the wedding ring. It's helpful for the diabetic and it's helpful for the Christian. Call to mind what is true. And something else, a second point of application that I want to call to mind here is that 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 command, consider yourselves, is given in such a way that Paul shows that he is aware we need to remind ourselves And consider this to be so again and again and again tomorrow and next Tuesday and for the rest of our lives. It's an ongoing reminder. It's not just call it to mind once. As if you're doing a memory verse for the Awana quiz. You said the thing. You got the point. You're all done. And now you can forget it. Our Awana kids don't do that, I'm sure. They're much better students than that. But it's not as though we're cramming for a test. We are reminding ourselves constantly. This is an ongoing expectation. Consider this to be so. Consider it to be so. Remind yourself of what is true. Remind yourself again and again because we're all sitting here right now and temptation is pretty easy to face down. 
because you got your brother or sister in Christ sitting right next to you. We're, we've got our Bibles open. We're praying together. We're talking, right? It's, it's easier to believe in this context. It's easier to face temptation, to fight against sin in this kind of context. But you won't remain in this context. Tuesday afternoon will come. Friday night will come. The difficult times will come when we're not sitting here being strengthened by those around us. And he says, when that time comes, before that time comes, and after it comes, remind yourself of what is true about you. You are no longer in Adam, Christian. If you've trusted Christ, this is no longer you. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer going to inherit ultimate death. You're no longer going to be condemned before God. You're no longer dead in Adam. You're alive in Christ if you were in Him. You have a new master. You've been made alive spiritually. You've been united with Him. You have a new one that you want to serve. You have died to sin and you live to God in Christ. So remind yourself of this. Remind yourself of this. He's going to build on that concept as we continue on throughout uh, Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8. He's going to build on these things that are true of us because of having been justified. But we need to remember to call it to mind. Remember those things and remember them always. Call them to mind continually. But there's a third application The third application is the Lord's Supper. If we have died to sin and we are alive to God in Christ, boy, that reminds us of the Lord's Supper. Let me me reread our passage today in light of our communion time. Communion is about us celebrating, commemorating, reminding ourselves, reminding one another, of the Lord's death, of what Jesus did for us. And we celebrate that with these elements. With, with that in mind, with this commemoration in mind, let me reread our passage today. If we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if I could have the men who are going to serve come forward, please. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating those things. We're celebrating Jesus' death on our behalf. The fact that He gave Himself up as a sacrifice, as a substitute in our place because of the penalty that we owed to God by our own sin. The penalty that we owed because of what we've done and the penalty that we owed because of our first ancestor, Adam, and what we've inherited from him, that great guilt. And Jesus came onto the scene born as a little baby, 
and lived sinlessly, obeying the Father, being obedient where we've been disobedient, and then dying on the cross, which is what we celebrate here. A righteous person dying in the place of the unrighteous. And so because of that, this is a celebration of the gospel. This is a celebration of what we believe. And so if, if you don't know Christ, if you don't believe in him, then I would encourage you to think about what we've talked about and let the elements pass. Just let them go on by. And if you would like, I would love to answer questions. I would love to talk with you about this or pray with you about this situation after the fact. But just let the elements go. Likewise, we who are Christians, we have a call from Scripture that we would examine ourselves, that we would think about our own need for this truth, that we would call that fact to mind, that I have no right of myself to stand before God. Of myself, I would have no peace with God. I would remain at enmity. But I have Christ. I have Christ who gave himself as a substitute for me to pay that penalty for me that I might have peace with God instead. So Christian, as the elements are being passed around, as we're going through this, I pray that you would think about that. Think about your own self. Confess your own sin and your own ongoing need for uh, this truth that we celebrate here. Gentlemen, if you would take up the bread, please. The bread is a representation of the body of Christ, which he gave for us on the cross. I read this from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, we are about to remind ourselves of Jesus giving his own body for us as we take this bread. We thank you that he was willing to do that, that he was willing to deal with sin on our behalf, having lived righteously in our stead and having died where we deserve to die, that he would give his own body to be beaten and bruised to secure our redemption. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.